What's up, everybody? Good morning. How y'all doing? Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm so glad to be here with you today uh, and to be opening God's Word with you. Uh, if you're new with us for the, or here for the first time or the first time in a while, <clears throat> we are going through the middle section of the Gospel of Mark right now. Uh, and we've been talking about the way of the kingdom. We've been talking about how Jesus is in the business of renewing all things and how we, as his followers, get to participate in that renewal. Today's journey through the Gospel of Mark is really personal for me um, because today's passage is directly linked to perhaps one of the most critical moments of renewal in my own personal faith journey. <clears throat> I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the interaction that we'll witness between uh, Jesus and an unnamed father in our passage today may have saved my faith. And maybe on more than one occasion, and maybe even in the past few years. And I hope that maybe what I share today will be one day, if not today, helpful for you as well. So with that, let's dig in. Uh, we're going to read together Mark chapter 9, uh, and I'm going to take a moment of silence and pray, and then we'll get going. <clears throat> Today's passage comes from Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. That's Mark 9, 14 to 29. You can follow along in your own Bibles or on the screen behind me or on your phone, uh, whatever it is that gives you joy. Hear the word of the Lord. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that's robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. <clears throat> He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It's often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. <coughs> you deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, the disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Holy Spirit, Lord and giver of life, you who give us 
the power to see Jesus for who he is. We ask that you'd be with us this morning, regardless of where we are, whether we're in good places or bad, whether life is easy or difficult, some combination in between. Spirit, we invite your presence now to give us the faith to declare along with the Father, I believe, help my unbelief. Be with us this morning. Open our eyes to see you, our ears to hear you, our hearts to love you, and our feet to follow you. Jesus, we love you, and we lift up this time to you. In your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, to give you a little context, our passage today opens with Jesus and his three closest friends just getting back from a retreat. Sound familiar? <clears throat> and then coming back down from the mountain, they walk into a big old ruckus below. Turns out that some of Jesus' followers had gotten into a shouting match with some of the region's most prominent religious leaders. And we don't know who threw the first punch, but we know what the fight was about. The disciples who hadn't gone on the retreat with Jesus had failed big time and in a big way. Apparently, while Jesus was away, a father brought his demon-possessed son to be healed by Jesus. But Jesus wasn't there, right? He was away on retreat. So the man instead appeals to Jesus' disciples and asks them to do something they've actually done before. Cast out a demon and heal someone. But to everyone's consternation, this time, for whatever reason, they couldn't. The disciples, you see, who had watched Jesus walk on water, who stilled storms and raised little girls back to life from the dead, <clears throat> the disciples, who under Jesus' own orders, had also healed the sick, mended the brokenhearted, and driven out demons by the dozens. The disciples, who used to have the spiritual power to move mountains into the sea, these disciples suddenly couldn't. And the Father, already no stranger to the heartache of hopelessness, this Father's heart was broken open again because of the disciples' failure. This father, who had huddled over and held onto his spasming son since infancy, this father, who had tenderly cleaned the excrement off the boy's body after spasms of seizures shook him senseless, this father, who soothed the son's burns and dried out his clothes, forever fighting against hell and high water, often pulling his son out of both, this father, whose reservoir of tears had long ago dried up and who was no stranger to heartache was again crushed under the weight of one more disappointment, one more failed hope, one more heartbreak, this time at the hands of Jesus' disciples. And the religious enforcers who were around and saw that, they pounced on the Father's pain, shaming Jesus' disciples in front of everyone just so that anyone watching would know how much of a crock the way of Jesus was. See, the scene that Jesus walks into is not a pretty picture. It's a scene filled with pain. The gloating of the scribes, the failure of the disciples, the powerlessness of the Father. And maybe, as we think through this, Maybe you'll see that you've felt some of this before too. I mean, how many of us have felt the emptiness of smug certitude like that of the scribes? The emptiness that comes whenever we use another person's pain as a pawn in our own politicking. 
The emptiness that comes after you make them feel so small after their failure, just so you can feel a little bit better about yourself. The emptiness that comes from rubbing their failure in their face, just so you can get a little bit more cred. Or how many of us have known disappointment like the disciples, right? The time we disappointed our teammates when it really mattered. When we let a mentor down at that critical moment. The pain of when pride falls on its face and the favored to win fails fantastically. Or how many of us have known the pain of the father's powerlessness? The despair that we feel after we exhaust ourselves in caring for the one who's chronically ill, unable to do anything except to watch our beloved deteriorate before our eyes. As this passage opens, we find three characters, the scribes, the disciples, and the father, all wrestling with their own form of emptiness, all with their own form of lostness. So Jesus, right, he walks in on this scene and gets a report of all that's been going down, and his response is intense. You faithless generation, how much longer must I put up with you? Yikes. But who is Jesus talking to, right? Who's the faithless generation that Jesus is referring to? Now, a few scholars will say that Jesus is talking to the scribes and they're dismissive, there's no hope in that posture towards Jesus. A few other scholars will say that Jesus is talking to the disciples and their cocky, self-sufficiency-driven, spectacular failure. (coughs) As a third option, A few scholars say that Jesus is talking to the Father in his pain-induced despair. But most readers think that Jesus is addressing the whole lot of them. And I'm inclined to agree. Because when I read this passage, I see three characters bearing the same core problem. I see them living from the emptiness of disbelief. When I read this passage, I see three forms of disbelief on display, which, though related is entirely different than the idea of doubt. Now, I'll unpack this more in a little while, but for now, let me just say that I'm convinced that there is a major, maybe even eternal difference between disbelief and doubt. And here's the difference. Relationship. The difference between doubt and disbelief is relationship. You see, doubt continues to commit to the relationship even if it doesn't understand or even if it doesn't necessarily agree with what they're seeing. Doubt says, I don't know. I'm not so sure, but I'm with you. And so if this goes bad, we'll go down together. That's doubt. But disbelief is different. Disbelief, you see, functions independently from relationship. It carries an active sense of, yeah, good luck with that. I'm staying over here. Or even a sense of, "Uh, I'm good. I got this, I don't need any help, I can muscle through. Or even, uh, I'm on my own. I don't know that anyone's going to help me. If doubt is the posture of interdependence, disbelief is the posture of independence. And as this story opens, we find three forms of disbelief on display. The scribes with their dismissive disbelief, there is no hope in that kind of disbelief. The disciples with their self-assured self-sufficiency, I am my own hope. I can do this kind of disbelief. And the father with his crushed heart, the I have no hope. It's helpless kind of disbelief. All three 
symptomatically stuck in various forms of disbelief. And I suspect that when we step back and take a look closely at each of these characters, maybe you'll see that they're each actually pretty identifiable. Maybe you'll even see a bit of yourself in the story too. I know I do. So, let's start with the disbelief of the scribes. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, the scribes are by far Jesus' most ardent opponents. They were the academics and the scholars of the day. And on the whole, they were convinced that this newfangled faith and way that Jesus purveys is one huge and very dangerous mistake. And while the reasons and arguments may have changed since the days of the scribes, that dismissive posture towards the viability of faith that the scribes embodied has not. The last couple of decades have seen the rise of a very intelligent and very articulate scientists, professors, and writers who argue passionately and confidently that there is no God or that God is dead. Now this particular disbelief insists that there is no ultimate meaning to life, that in the end we are actually simply a sack of molecules that came together by chance. No more, no less. They argue that there is nothing beyond this biological life and you're an idiot for hoping anything else. And you know, I used to just dismiss out of hat people who held these views. I just assumed they were people who must have been hurt by the church at some point in their life and they're now on a crusade against Christianity. But then a few years ago, while I was pastoring at a church in the intellectual orbits of Harvard and MIT, I got introduced to a newish field of study about the human mind. And as I began learning these new insights and discoveries in the way we think and how our brains work, suddenly I found myself questioning everything. And I mean everything that I ever knew about my own mind and how I process life and love and God and the whole ball of wax. And I'll be honest, it took the rug right out from underneath me. I found myself asking really uncomfortable questions about the nature of reality and some of the fundamentals of the faith that I had just taken for granted my whole life. And that was scary for me. Scary because their claims actually made a lot of sense to me. Unnervingly so. And in case you missed it, right? I was a pastor at the time. A professional Christian. (laughs) It was my job and I was getting paid to be an anchor of faith for a whole community. But I had become completely untethered and spiritually rudderless. Wondering if everything I believed was just a fairy tale after all. And so after conversations with a few trusted voices in my life, it became pretty obvious pretty quickly that I needed to take some time out and spend some time to figure this out. I needed to do some serious reflection and study and thinking. And I was also then encouraged to seek out the opinions of other Christian academics and scientists. Seek out other people who have devoted their lives to the study of science and of the brain. People who had the same information that I had, if not more, and yet came out on the other side still believing in Jesus. Which ended up actually being pretty easy for us, for me, because believe it or not, we had a brain doctor in our congregation in Boston. So... 
One Sunday after church, I casually walked over to Dr. Justin Jordan, one of the preeminent brain cancer researchers and doctors in the world, a man who has spent dozens and dozens of years devoted to the study of the brain. And so I walk up to the guy after church one Sunday, and I came in completely out of the blue. I says to the guy, I says, so Justin, you're familiar with the left brain interpreter and confabulation, yes? Good, because I'm having an existential crisis about it. Any chance we could grab lunch sometimes so I could ask you a few questions about the viability of faith in light of neuroscience? Yes. I am a master at pickup lines. <laughs> but you know, he was gracious with his time. And a couple days later, we sat down for a long conversation on a bench in Boston Commons. Actually, that bench right there, no, no lie. Uh, we talked about brain functioning. We talked about scientific method and theories and peer-reviewed research and receptor genes in the brain. He humored my, what I'm sure, sounded like completely naive questions. But taking my questions in stride, he gently reminded me that good science is about asking good questions. And then taking your best guess at what you've learned and establishing theories and then holding it all loosely enough to revisit your findings in light of new discoveries. He reminded me that good science is about the pursuit of knowledge, not necessarily the certainty of it. And so to declare with such conviction that there is nothing beyond what we can see in the immediacy of the moment, well, that level of disbelief really takes its own kind of faith as well. But clearly, it can sometimes sound like a compelling narrative, he said, or we wouldn't be sitting here today. So maybe in the future, he went on, rather than just dismissing the views of others that are different from yours, maybe you can remember this time and respond to their certainty with empathy and curiosity and compassion. It's like Justin was saying to me, be wary of being too quick to condemn the certainty of the scribes. We like to paint these guys as the bad guys in Jesus' story, but maybe, just maybe, it's not quite as difficult to fall into dismissive disbelief category, as we might like to imagine. Maybe they're not all that different from you and I. And given the right circumstances, maybe we can oftentimes be just as dismissive as to what Jesus can do as they are. I mean, have you ever written Jesus off, dismissed him because those people over there seem too different than you, too difficult for you? That those people over there seemed too beyond healing, too beyond helping too beyond understanding or forgiving or loving or accepting. Be wary because that kind of disbelief isn't all that different than the disbelief of the scribes. Okay, that's the disbelief of the scribes and it rocked me pretty hard. Now I want to transition and look at the disbelief that's probably the quietest killer among us today. It's a form of disbelief that's actually probably the most prevalent here at Mill City among us. It's a form of disbelief that many of us have actually been trained to spot and celebrate and encourage from our very first steps to our last breath. And that's the disbelief found in the form of self-sufficiency. It's the disbelief that says, even if subconsciously, I am my own hope. This is the disbelief of the disciples and it rages among us today. 
I mean, go into any bookstore, right? <clears throat> and you'll be overwhelmed at the opportunities for self-help, self-empowerment, or self-improvement. And if I'm not improving, well, then I better guess I, I better try just a little bit harder, be a little bit better, start loving myself and my neighbor and my job a little bit more, because when I do, the world will finally start to be all right. And whether we realize it or not, so many of us develop this kind of underlying view of faith that God actually helps the self-starters, the initiators, the independents, the active agents. Many of us have come to believe, practically speaking, that true change, true healing, true spiritual power is actually up to us. But here's the danger, right? Eventually, we build our sense of worth on our own moral goodness and our own spiritual performances. We build our sense of security on our own abilities and our own strength and on ourselves. And eventually, we start trusting in our own goodness so much that we stop trusting in Jesus' goodness. And as a result of this, many of us are working so hard and running so fast and laboring without relenting that we risk burning out and sliding into a spiritual and emotional coma if we're not careful. Because like the disciples were, we're running on our own power. The minute our feet hit the floor in the morning, we're already behind. We know it. We go to work early, we come home late, we rush through a meal, maybe watch an episode of something on the TV, only to do it all again the next day. And then the weekend comes, and if we're not traveling or standing at the sidelines at kids' sport games or not too hungover from the night before, we'll show up at church. But then when we do finally spend some time in Christian community, we'll look at each other and we'll smile politely because we have to have it all together to be at church, right? Because church is for people who have their lives put together. But inside, inside we're dying. And we feel stuck, cut off from God. We feel distant from others. And we don't want to reach out and ask for help because that would look weak. Because we've been conditioned to live like the disciples and to not acknowledge when we actually need the help. So we just end up doing what everyone else in the crowd does. We seek the next degree, next job, the next promotion, the next relationship, and we keep running right in step with every other anxious person who's running as hard as they can, racing after whatever's in front of them, going from one thing to another to another. Maybe this isn't you, but it sure is explicative than me. And like my temptation, maybe you respond to fears and failures, not with faith, but with self-sufficiency. Some of you are just like me and respond to obstacles by working faster, harder, stronger, longer, keeping on trying to change it all with our own strength and will and insight and intelligence. But living this way will never make us radical. It just makes us powerless to do good and harmless against the kingdom of darkness. And so we wonder why nothing seems to change around us and why our demons keep on thriving all around us. Okay. So we looked at the certainty of the scribes, the there is no hope in that form of disbelief. We looked at the self-sufficiency of the disciples, the I am my own hope form of disbelief. Lastly, I want to look at the despair of the Father, the I have no hope form of disbelief. 
regardless of where you are, whether you're struggling or surging right now, I bet that all of us can think back to a moment in our lives when we've experienced deep sadness or tragedy, when we felt alone or without hope. I'd imagine we've all experienced a season in life where things didn't go as we planned or when dreams didn't get realized, just like the father in the story. Have you ever found yourself here? Believing that nothing really changes, no matter what you seem to do or try and wondering if there's any hope left? Do you ever wonder if this is all that I can expect, that there's actually no real hope for change after all? I suspect that we've all been here sometimes. We've all experienced moments when life didn't meet up to our expectations of it, when sinful choices of others around us have wounded us, or when God seemed like a million miles away with no hope or help in sight. I mean, you've just started to pull your family back together when suddenly you lose your job. You're just finally starting to trust again, only to get used and abused by the person you've risked having a relationship with. You can't wait to be a parent. And because of infertility or miscarriages, your day never seems to come, even though no one else around you seems to have any challenges. I guess there's no real hope for us. You think that you finally conquered that sin that keeps on keeping on. You've had weeks without it. Maybe this time you'll finally be in the clear, only to find yourself back under the same old sin, getting crushed by the same old shame. And after a while, the pain just kind of pulverizes your hope into a pulp. And you find yourself not really expecting that there's any hope left for you. You know, I've had friends who were brought up in the church and who were taught to place a huge amount of importance under the belief that God is good and that faith in God will bring you good things. But then suddenly, like this father in our story, they suffered some kind of tremendous pain in their lives, not because something happened to themselves necessarily. People can usually weather their own setbacks. It's when something happens to someone else that they love almost more than life itself. That's the rock that crushes them. Because suddenly, the spiritual power that they thought they had didn't fix their fears or heal their beloved. And suddenly, the clean and neat categories of faith that they held on to weren't capable of helping them navigate the complexity of their lived experiences. Because of them, a good God was incongruous with the crushing disappointment that they, and pain that they felt. And so, like jilted lovers, they turned away from God. And this is where we find the father in our story. He's watched his boy continuously tortured by painfully dark forces and his heart hangs on by a thread. His hope has been dashed so many times just like he was dashed to pieces by Jesus' disciples. And so he says to Jesus, if you can do anything. Now, this is not a statement of expectation. This is the rote response of someone who's only seen failure after failure after failure. It's the, I'll believe it when I see it, but sure. On the off chance that you actually do have any power to do something different this time around, look kindly upon us. But I've been too hurt too often to really put much stock in the belief that anything's going to be all that different five minutes from now. This is the disbelief of the Father. The despair that says, I have no hope. And so Jesus, right? Jesus walks into this hot mess and is exasperated at the amount of disbelief surrounding him. And he says back to the Father, if you can, what do you mean if you can? Anything is possible for the one who believes. And there it is. 
There's the gospel. Jesus is not saying to this man, come on, dude, just have the smallest amount of faith and you can move mountains. Just believe in Santa a little bit and his sleigh will fly off into the sky. You only need a mustard seed's worth and your son will be completely healed. Just name it and claim it. Come on. No. That's no gospel at all. Anything is possible for the one who believes. Yes. But in the gospel of Mark, there is only one person who fully, perfectly, unendingly, uncompromisingly, powerfully believes in God enough to entrust the entirety of his life and the gruesomeness of his death into God's hands. In the Gospel of Mark, there is only one character who believes throughout the entire thing, and that one character is Jesus. And the good news of the Gospel is that Jesus doesn't expect me to change on the power of my own faith. That's what the disciples are trying to do, and look how far that got them, right? All that did was get Jesus ticked off. The point is not that with enough faith you can do anything. It's that Jesus and Jesus alone has enough faith and power to do anything. It's not the amount of faith that's important. You've got to hear that. It's the object of our faith that's important. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is the one who has enough faith and power to heal you, to carry you, to encourage you, to give you the safety and significance and joy that you were created to know. It is Jesus alone who gives forgiveness to the, faithful, to the faithless and strength to despairing and even life to the dead. It's not my faith that saves me. Jesus and Jesus alone does. The only difference between disbelief and faith is where we're looking. If we look to our fears, if we look to our failures or our frustrations, or if we look to our own strength or creativity or ingenuity, we will stay stuck. We will stay lost. We will stay powerless. But if, like the Father, on the precipice of despair and disbelief, we turn and look to Jesus, immediately everything changes. You see, God never asked us to save ourselves or anyone else for that matter. In Jesus, God has invited us to let Jesus save us. And the Father, right, he sees Jesus, even if just for a second. And so he says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And just like that, the demons are driven out. The boy who is as good as dead gets raised to new life, and everyone goes home happy as a clam. Except for the disciples, who still don't get it. Why could we not cast it out, they ask. So Jesus answers them, this kind can only come out through prayer. What? Where did that come from, right? I mean, who prayed in this story? Jesus didn't. The scribes clearly didn't. The disciples clearly didn't. Jesus didn't. Only one person prayed in this story. Yeah, the dad did. Because you see, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, is itself perhaps one of the most powerful prayers that we can pray. In this prayer, the father acknowledges that not, what none of the other characters were willing or able to do. He acknowledges his powerlessness to do anything, even believe. 
In his prayer, the father communicates dependence and deference to the Lord of the universe who is standing before him. Like I said earlier, this middle section of the Gospel of Mark is all about how to follow Jesus. It's all about learning to live the way of the kingdom. And the first and most critical step, it turns out, is simply to honestly declare our dependence on Jesus, even when we don't get it. Even when we're in a rut. Even when we've exhausted ourselves at a breaking point by working on our own strength. Even when our whole world is getting thrown in the fire or drowned in the deeps. In those moments, When the house of cards collapses, it won't be our flashy answers that get us out of it. It won't be our logical proofs. It won't be our solid apologetical arguments. It won't be our good works or our strong morality or our untouchable character. It won't be our strength to muscle through it all. None of that will work anymore because none of that will ever save us. In those moments, when we're at the end of ourselves, we'll find that it's only Jesus, just Jesus, the one who lived a life completely dependent upon the Father, the one who entrusted himself to God even though it brought him to the cross and the grave, the one who fully and completely believed that God would have the final say, not death. And what we learn from Jesus when we see him in his pain, abandonment, and agony is that God is actually right there too. God is in the best, yes, but God is also in the worst. God is in the presence and also the absence. God is in the power and the powerlessness. God is there too. God is there in the tears, in the questions, in the doubt, in the blood. God is there holding our heart as it writhes in agony in the fire and under the water. God even stands next to us and looks up at the sky with us even when we're shaking our fists and raging at the heavens, wondering where God went. Turns out he's right there with us. This is the unexpected power of the cross, turning so many of our ideas about God on their heads, insisting that God is so much for us that God would be willing to take on the worst the world has to offer and then suffer it and absorb it and feel it right down to his last breath. And then as the story goes, having entrusted his life and death to God, Jesus is resurrected three days later in order to begin a new work of a new kingdom right here among us. The new work of healing, the new work of life for you and for me. And the only thing that God asks of us in return is that we look to Jesus. That we let Jesus be for us. That we let Jesus be our strength. That we let Jesus' faithfulness and his faith be sufficient for us. Here's what this has meant for me. Sitting on that bench in Boston Commons marked a real milestone for me. Because in that moment, I was reminded that faith and doubt are not enemies. Doubt is a sign that your faith is alive and has a pulse. It's the heartbeat of faith that says, even in the midst of doubt, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And in the years following, I found myself praying and re-praying and praying this prayer over and again and again and again and again. Because this prayer of the Father reminds me that faith and doubt are not enemies. Faith and disbelief are. Antagonic disbelief says, Lord, there is no Lord. 
You do the best you can with the cards you have, and a little luck, your life might not suck all that much. There isn't really any hope beyond that. Self-sufficiency says, Lord, sure, God is good, but I'm all set. I got this. I'm good. I don't need any help. I'll just work harder, faster, longer, better. I am my own hope. Despair says, the Lord, the Lord has abandoned me, abandoned us. We're all hosed. There's no hope for me. There's no hope for them. But it is faith that prays, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. So this week, this month, shoot, this life, when the promises of God seem too good to be true or too impossible to believe, I invite you to remember this prayer. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. When the restorative healing work of the kingdom of God or the hope of the resurrection feels too pie in the sky, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. When forgiveness feels impossible to extend, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. When you wonder if you'll ever be free from this addiction, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. When the imminence of disease or death feels too terrifying to accept, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. When your family feels too broken, parenting feels too overwhelming, your job or classes feel too unrelenting, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. When giving your partner the benefit of the doubt feels too much of an ask, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. This is the prayer that Jesus loves to answer. Because this is the prayer that Jesus alone can answer. Would you pray with me? Lord, like the Father before us, we come together this morning, regardless of where we are, and, we de- and together we declare, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. We all have those moments and those places where faith feels impossible. Where it feels like just an impossible ask to take that next step. But we know, Jesus, that we don't have to rely on our own faith. That you and you alone have enough faith for us. We just have to look to you and declare our helplessness. So Jesus, we ask this morning that we come face to face with those times in life where we're at the end of ourselves, that we would turn to our only hope, you. And that with everything that we have, declare along together, help my unbelief. Lord, I believe. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.